Well, it's my privilege to welcome you to church this morning and greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're glad to have each of you that are gathered in this room or those of you meeting with us via live stream. This is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. And this is where we'll begin and uh, where we'll read from Scripture. And as with some sermons or messages, I think it's usually best to end where we start and start where we'll end. So this will bookend our time together this morning. And in David's prayer, it's already been mentioned And I think is a fitting passage of scripture. What I hope, it's my prayer, that uh, wherever you are today and whatever you brought in here with you, as far as cares or concerns or pain or suffering or loss or frustration, we go to the scriptures with that. And this is one of the passages that I think is so full And it'll be the basis of our discussion today. But we begin in verse 18. This is Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 18. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. It's a lengthy passage, but this is the Word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing... For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who has been raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your, your word and its promises. We thank you for what it means, what it implies, the sure rock it puts under our feet. Lord, I ask that you bless our time together considering our present circumstances, where we find ourselves, and what your word says about them. Lord, may we have both our ears open. May we be humble enough to hear you out. May you teach us through your word what you need us to know. And Lord, would you give us the grace to respond accordingly and in humility, and in obedience. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, some of the things that you'll hear, and some of the things included in this message, I wouldn't call it a sermon. We've taken a departure, at least for a few weeks, from our verse-by-verse study through Scripture. And to address some things topically, we, we talked about this last week, having completed our study of the book of Jonah and having removed ourselves some months from what started in early March and has affected us since. Now, I think is the time we've had some space enough to think and to pray and now perhaps enough time to say some things about these circumstances uh, in, in what you'll hear today, I consulted a number of sources. Some I recommend to you. Uh, one tiny little book by John Lennox, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? Also, John Piper. This one's quite popular. Coronavirus and Christ. It's also free. You can download it. It's not lengthy, but it's good. And then from C.S. Lewis, the, the Problem of Pain. Some of you have that. You've read it. Maybe you've read it more than once, but it, though it has some age, seems to be as timely as this morning's newspaper. And of the three problems that we discussed last week, and if you were not here, we, we ask ourselves, what is the church supposed to do? And we looked to the book of Acts and found what the apostles did when they were in trouble. But we discussed a global pandemic we discussed social disintegration, and we discussed political agitation. We didn't go into detail. That's for today and the weeks to come. But for our time together, let's just, let's just discuss this virus that we've been talking about and feeling its effects for some time. Uh, seems we've gotten past the empty streets and the empty supermarket shelves. Well, most of them. You still can't find certain things, and I wish I knew where all the cornmeal was. Uh, of one thing out of so many, where did that go? I don't know. Um, we've got 
to the other side of this and we're, we're doing our diligence in filling the churches that have been empty. We're, we're allowed to do such a thing, but our, our businesses and our jobs, they're still very much at risk. And uh, the effects of this is going to be felt for some time. And whether we want to admit it or not, sometimes on some days and some circumstances, it's better to just ignore some of these things and move on. But whether we want to admit it on a daily basis or not, we're living in an age or era-defining period of time. Uh, some of the marks and changes that have taken place will be lasting. I'm sure of that. And along with that, our assumptions, our expectations, even uh, some of our certainties um, are probably not available to us. Those things have, have changed. And perhaps the worst part of it, we have no real mechanism of knowing how long we should expect before we reach normalcy again. Uh, whether normalcy be the way things were, or whether normalcy be adjusting to the way things will be. That's to be determined, and for some, that's the worst part to stomach. We've learned a lot about viruses, at least if you pay attention or try to make sense out of what you hear. And uh, up until this year, I always associated a virus as a bad thing. Um, usually you don't think of pleasant thoughts. That and bacteria, though... When you study about diet, you learn that there's such a thing as uh, good bacteria. Well, there's such a thing as good viruses as well. It's just that we're learning about one new, novel variation on a virus that we've known about for some time. Here's some scientific statistics, because I know that's why you came here today, right? For the scientific statistics. The truth is, we know of 21 types of virus that cause harm to the human body. And among those types, there are many variations. But there's 21 of them. And that's 21 out of about 100 million that we think exist in this world. And the large part of those are not just beneficial, but essential to our life. We wouldn't survive without the help of these viruses. And... Just to put it into perspective, in a healthy lake or river, and we'll call this enough scientific factoids, in one quarter teaspoon of river or lake water, there's enough viruses to represent one third of America's population. Again, about a hundred million in a quarter teaspoon of lake water. That's a lot. So the question is, how can something so small yet so prolific, cause so much damage, and wreck so many things. And why would God allow that to happen? We kind of left on the table last week in discussion between the difference in evil regarding moral evil and natural evil. We didn't go into but so much detail, but there's two different types of evil. The coronavirus is a natural evil. And the difference between the two is that human beings are directly responsible for moral evil, where natural evil, human beings are not directly attached to blame or the fact that it is. 
So we've got all types of natural evils. All kinds of diseases fit under that category. Cancers fit in that category. And there are many broken hearts in our congregation and its family over the news of an 11-year-old girl. Many of you have heard this. You've been praying for this. But this past week she had an operation to remove a mass in her brain which was later diagnosed as cancer and the details of the treatment into the future have not yet been put together but this is where a church prays for one of its own as a victim of natural evil cancers aren't moral agents no more than earthquakes or volcanoes or hurricanes or viruses they're not people they don't know good from bad that they don't even have a conscience and it's, it's this week we'll focus on that type of evil next week we'll look at the moral type that we're very much responsible for but in this case these things are grouped under the same heading and to top it all off, while I'm printing off this very manuscript in North Carolina, I feel an earthquake this morning. Immediately texted my wife, did you feel that? Did you feel what? <laughs> they missed it. I missed the one in Virginia that messed up the uh, Washington Monument, but I felt this one. Moral evil is suffering for which men and women are directly responsible. And those are things like acts of hate, acts of terror, violence, abuse, murder. That's for later. The coronavirus, again, is a natural evil. And most assuredly, there's moral evil lurking in the shadows under such a cloud like this. Uh, you can't very well call panic buying and selfish hoarding and taking advantage of the situation while others suffer as good things. Those are evil and people are involved in it. But as far as someone having to do with or be blamed by COVID-19, I'm, I'm, I'm with the idea that the evidence there is quite lacking now. Don't rule out a host of conspiracy theories that will try to assess blame, and they'll be talking about that for a very long time. And for what it's worth, be careful with conspiracy theories. There's always two things that are true with those. One is that it has to be plausible. It has to be plausible or it's just ridiculous and nobody even listens, right? But it also has to be not proved, if it was proved it'd be fact, it wouldn't be a conspiracy and it wouldn't be a theory. And there's always one thing that seems to just kind of lurk around a good conspiracy theory, and that is this seductive draw toward those who wish they had more knowledge, perhaps even that other people don't have. Don't ever forget who the, the original conspiracy theorist was, the father of all modern or ancient conspiracy theories. This is the devil himself. What did he say to Eve? You won't really die. The truth is, he's holding information from you. You'll be like him if you do that. You'll know what he knows. And even in the way it's described that she went after that fruit, that it was 
pleasant to the eyes and desirous to make one wise. She took it. There's danger there. There's all kinds of stuff we're never going to know. And that's because we're human and we can't read people's minds. And there will always be governments that are doing wrong things. But we serve a God who's control over all of that. And the truth of it, as far as what it makes sense for what we're discussing today, who's at fault, who could have known, who could have acted, none of that really does us any good in actually dealing with the crisis that we have in our lap. Nor does it give us any pointers as to how to react to it on a personal level as a Christian before God and love to our neighbors. We'll let other people worry about that for the time being. Now, there's one thing about moral evil or natural evil, whichever the type, either of them, they both have one dimension that's the same, and that is that they both cause a great deal of suffering and pain. So the, the, the problem of natural evil really is felt as the problem of pain. And that's where we'll give most of our thoughts today depending on your nearness and the severity of pain where you find yourself what has taken place that deals with and has a lot to do with your perspective on it uh, John Lennox put it this way as using the virus as an example he said the way coronavirus appears to an elderly infected woman hovering between life and death in intensive care is very different from how it looks to the doctor who's treating her or to the family member who's unable to visit her or the pastor who's trying to help her. And what he's done is basically looked at three different angles. And you could say that the doctor is looking at that likely in an intellectual capacity. You could say that the family member who can't visit is probably dealing with that on an emotional level. You could say that the pastor who's trying to help is probably concerned about a spiritual level. And truth is, we're all spiritual, emotional, intellectual beings, and we're going to need to make sense of this in all those facets. But depending on where you are and what's going on, one of those may be screaming a lot louder than the others. C.S. Lewis said this, Pain is what brings all these things to the surface. He said, and you've probably heard this, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And it's been working on me. I don't know if it's been working on you. But he's been speaking, and I hope we've been listening. We've learned our lesson that we shouldn't take gathering together at church for granted. We've learned our lesson that we're not promised tomorrow and that this virus indiscriminately seems to be taking lives. And we've certainly learned, unless we're just as hard-headed as the ground is hard, that not always are our plans going to come to pass. That stuff gets changed. So let's ask ourselves some questions. Questions that everybody's asking, whether you're saved or whether you're lost, as we would say. Questions that you might be in the position to help others with. 
questions others may have been getting wrong, questions that would be uh, encouraging to us, and questions that would prepare you to help others. So let's just put it in uh, the title of some of these books I've mentioned. You've probably heard it thrown around, and if you look at that social stuff, it's had its time. Where is God during all this? And maybe even more specifically, how can He tolerate this type of evil? We hear about it every time a hurricane comes through, every time there's a tsunami, or every time there's a epidemic, much less a pandemic. And the question's really one of worldview. You've basically got two options. If we've spent any time studying apologetics and worldview and ethics, it's basically this. Either we are designed, the world and everything in it, and there is a creator that designed it, or all of this is an accident and we're quite alone in it. That there's no one to look to as being the first cause. And depending on how you look at that, all of these questions, really ultimately the one, what do we do with pain and what do we do with our suffering, uh, they're answered vastly different, even though uh, we're not always intellectually honest with the way that takes place. Uh, the modern world, if we know our, our world and our, our church history, uh, has long since thrown God out of the equation as far as a creator and certainly as a lawgiver. But the world is very slow. It still hasn't uh, realized that in throwing God out of the equation, they've stripped all meaning out of the words good and evil. And it's basically like this. I won't bore you with it. If we came from meaninglessness, there's no creator, no design, and when we're dead, there's nothing but meaninglessness. It's kind of hard to ascribe any meaning to what's between that meaningless sandwich. It just doesn't work that way. And intellectual honesty will, will take even the, the atheists to that respect, even though they don't want to think that their lives are meaningless, their relationships, or what they consider to be important. We, however, on the other side of that... We believe that in the beginning God created the world and has complete and total power and authority over every last molecule. There's no such thing as one maverick molecule in God's kingdom, right? But even still, pain hurts us the same as it hurts the person who doesn't believe God. And we still have difficulty trying to figure out if God loves us so much, why do we have to endure this? We feel the weight of that question same as they do. We've got a better toolkit to answer it than someone who doesn't believe there's any purpose in life. But still it's there. So as far as the atheistic worldview, removing God does not remove the pain. It's still there. You throw away God, you've still got your pain. But with us, as Christians, embracing God and holding Him tight, we're still left with our pain. We're still answering the question, what is the purpose in all this? I think there's a lot to learn from the New Testament 
in answering this question. It'd be a long discussion, but just to try to think ourselves through the basics. When Jesus left heaven and lived as a man and walked among his own people, which were the Jews, they usually tended to jump to the conclusion that was wrong, that Jesus had come to give them what they wanted. Over and over again, we see this in our study with John. They come to him for something, and he tells them, that's not why I'm here. I'm here for your sins. I'm not here for your whatever else it might be. Probably one of the better stories here is this man whose uh, son, the official whose son was ill, and Jesus responds to his request to come to his house and heal his son by saying, Unless you see signs, you won't believe. And he's talking to everybody there. It didn't happen just one-on-one. And we spent time examining this. And the long story short, Jesus took the necessary time to get across to this man because later that day, he and his whole family were saved that there's something more important than just your physical needs. There's your spiritual needs. And we learned in that study that If he'd healed this man's boy and took away whatever was threatening his life, but did not tell him that his sins were going to take him to eternal death and without salvation, he would likewise perish eternally, then all he had done was temporarily save his body to be destroyed eternally away from God's presence. So in that regard, we learn there's a big difference in priority between spiritual things and temporal things here on this earth. And we learned then that removing the pain will not save us ultimately. Suppose Jesus came for that purpose. And while he was here on earth, he just at one time healed everybody of everything that ailed their bodies. He would have done nothing toward the reason why he's really here, and that was to take them from death to life by forgiving their sins and paying for them himself on the cross. He came to save our souls. And at the same time, he healed some of our bodies, but he didn't heal them all. We're still left with the question. Why not? Why are things the way they are? I I suppose this question might shift and uh, change along the way. This thinking goes a long way in answering that question. Consider this. These are old questions. We think of them as children. We think of them as adults. Why couldn't God have made things different? Why couldn't he have made electricity that wasn't dangerous? Why couldn't he have made fire that didn't burn? Why couldn't he have made a natural world where nothing went wrong and viruses and bacteria always did beneficial things? Why did he make animals eat one another? Why do we eat animals? Why do we have to prey on one another, it seems? Some people like fishing with live bait, but other people, they think it's awful. Why did God choose to do this the way he did? And the answer to those questions are, sure, he could, but that's not what he did. And at a certain point, as a mature Christian, you stop wondering or worrying about what he didn't do And learn what you can about what he did do. And what he did do was he made man and woman in his own image and then gave them this gift of moral agency when he gave them the gift to make their own choice. Right? And making one's own choice comes with risks. You know, you can marry a robot if you want to and program it however you want it to treat you. 
But if you marry a human being, there's a risk they might not do exactly what you want. But then again, they might love you in spite of who you are. And there's nothing on this planet like that, is it? There's a risk involved. And God created His world with that inherent risk. And Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve did exactly what they were not to do. And then from that point on, we see the Bible explaining God's plan to redeem this creation from its disobedience against Him. So if we're going to try to parse out and define that dividing line between good and evil, because God did say this world was good and then evil is present, and we're talking about coronavirus this morning, where's, where's the line? What's the difference between the good and the bad? Because of Genesis 3, none of us can honestly discuss the problem of evil and pain as though we're simply spectators of such things. Let me explain what I mean by that. No one's got a clean shirt in the discussion of evil. It all goes back to the curse that we learned about in the garden. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a, a political prisoner in Russia. He spoke out against the concentration camps, the forced labor gulag. And some of these things that he wrote were, were brilliant. This is him. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. That would work. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? During the life of any heart, this line keeps changing place. Sometimes it's squeezed one way by exuberant evil, and sometimes it shifts the other way to allow enough space for good to flourish. One and the same human being is, at various ages, under various circumstances, a totally different human being. At times he's close to being a devil, at times sainthood, but his name doesn't change. And to that name we ascribe the whole lot, good and evil. I think that's brilliant. That's me. The Bible tells us that's us. That's everybody. So at this point in the discussion, we too are part of the problem. We're tied not just morally to evil, but we're tied naturally to evil. And to wish for God to do with evil as if He could sweep it all away would actually be for God to sweep us away with it. God, remove evil. That's like one of those requests you want to be careful with. Don't ask a genie for that. Don't ask God to remove all evil as if you're not a participant. That's us too. What's wrong with the world? I'm what's wrong with the world. That's the way most of the world used to look at it until recently. What's wrong with the world? Well, I'll tell you. It's big business these days. It betrays our own bias. We want God to remove evil so long as it doesn't include us. So perhaps it would be better to ask a different question. 
And uh, I know some of this sounds like rambling. And the only comfort I have in a rambling message is because it sounded like most of the stuff I've been reading since March is rambling stuff. Just trying to make sense of it and organize it and just keep up with it is, is awful. But this is, again, John Lennox, who's a mathematician and an apologist. And I really like the way he put it. We're mathematicians. If we can't solve a problem, and uh, we've been at it for years, and it just doesn't seem to work or add up, we'll ask another question. So perhaps it's time as, as Christians to ask another question. Why is the world this way? Why does God allow evil? Maybe we should just ask, is there a God whom we can trust with the truth, with our lives, with our futures? Is there a God we can trust His goodness? Is there a God we can trust with a hurt that we don't understand? That might be a better question and one that's more easily answered with a Bible full of reasons to trust a God with a hurt we don't understand who He has chosen not to completely reveal to us or answer all the questions. Here's what Christianity claims. It doesn't take us but a few steps of logic to answer a question like that. Christianity claims that Jesus Christ was God's own Son, right? And that this Son of God was sent to earth to live in human form. Big question is, if you're really condensing this story, okay, if He's the Son of God, what was He doing on a cross? Because it doesn't seem to me that that's the place for the guy who created the whole world and everything in it. Well, that's a good question. Why was He on the cross? Well... That's another discussion, but there's enough information there to make at least one determination, and that is that at least there's little distance between the God who came to this earth and the pain that this world suffers. Because it doesn't only look like he was open to experiencing pain. It looks as if he authored the whole plan. To come here and drink up the worst of what this planet has to offer as far as pain and suffering. So this God that we're considering whether or not he's trustworthy with our pain has been through the same pain himself. Purposefully. At minimum, he's not distant. So, making a conclusion based on the truth of such a fact... A Christian then is not a person who solved the problem or riddles of suffering or has all the answers, but someone who's come to love and trust the God who has suffered for them. I hope that is a piece of truth good enough to put in your pocket and walk through whatever this world is going to throw at us. Because it's kind of hard. Even though all of us are in one of three stages. Either we just came out of a trouble. Or we're right in the middle of a trouble. Or we're on our way from one of those two. But unless we're right in the middle of it. We have this amazing resilience to just ignore so many things. But it's my hope that some people will find great comfort 
and all this. That Jesus came into this world to take away the sin of the world that caused all the pain. So that all the pain can actually and correctly be done away with. Not now, but later. So if those things are true, if God can be trusted, even though He hasn't given us all the answers, how should we respond as a Christian or as a church to natural evil? We'll talk about moral evil later. And here's some practical stuff, a few thoughts. And for some who enjoy thinking through claims of Christ and Scripture's implications for worldviews, you've had your dose. For others of that, that say, okay, where's the beef? What am I supposed to do? Maybe this will be encouraging to you. But here are four of them. What can we do? What should we do? Because we know what we know. Number one, listen to the experts. Whether you want to or not. As a matter of common sense, we should be wise enough to take serious the medical advice of those whose expertise is not in question. There are those whose expertise is in question. We won't worry about those for now, but there are some who have earned their degrees, they're competent, and we're going to just trust the common grace of God that we have at our disposal, some information from experts that will help us. The problem is when such advice is not consistent or when it's confusing, which is pretty much the problem with about every news outlet I've gone to looking for help. Um, a lot of noise you'll have to sift through in order to find something that's of use. We're all too familiar with quarantine, distancing, face coverings. But I wondered if any of you knew that all three of those are in your Bibles. Some of you are looking like, all right, spit it out. In Leviticus, the part of the Bible that uh, you like to skip over in your yearly reading because it's so exciting. There's a whole list of things that happen when someone's skin looked wrong. And because it might be leprosy, the minimum was seven-day quarantine. And it required different visits to the priest to check and see what it looks like. And it might be an indefinite quarantine. Because if you're diagnosed with leprosy, then begins the distancing. You actually have to holler out ahead of you unclean. And would you know it? It says right there in Scripture... Thinks chapter 13. They cover their lower half of their face with a cloth. Why? Because other people might catch it. And this is way back in the Bible before they had any of the news outlets that we do now or task forces or centers for disease control. The point I'm trying to make is this. God expects us to be wise and courteous and love our brothers and sisters. If it works, it's a small concession to love our brother. We'll wear them. I wore mine until I started talking. I hate these things. I don't like smelling my own breath. But I'll wear it if it keeps people safe. So we listen to the experts because we've got a lot more going for us than just this little time on this planet. If 
we know Jesus. There's more and the, the best is yet to come. Secondly, which is right off the end of this, love your neighbor. Many of the things asked of us by experts should be viewed as small concessions in the spirit of loving our neighbors enough to protect them. That may be the beginning of what's required, though. That's just your government. What does your Bible ask you to do? We've got all these parables about loving our neighbors, and still we try to ask ourselves, okay, tell me who my neighbor is. We know that's wrong. Who are you neighbor to? And that's where the time is spent, by keeping in touch, making calls, writing letters, sitting on a porch. And we still have 24 hours a day. It's a lot to ask. Is it worth it? And give people some space. I'm finding that people are not really themselves these days. I'm realizing that about me. And when you're suffering or when you're aggravated or when you're frustrated or when you're grieving or when you've lost something, you will say and do things that aren't typical of of yourself. Give people room for that. Give them space. God gave us space. One of my favorite portions in Psalm is he plants my feet in a wide open space and gives me space to be the idiot that I am. Love your neighbor. Number three, maintain perspective. I read this to you uh, almost five months ago. This was back in March. Uh, I, I couldn't find any way to improve on it. Again, it's C.S. Lewis. We're wearing him out today. Um, but he wrote this 72 years ago. If you were here in March, you, you've heard it already. He says, in one way, we think a great deal too much about the atomic bomb. That was the problem then. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. He's uh, vivid here. Or indeed, you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was ever invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors. Anesthetics. We still have them. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, he said 72 years ago. But they need not dominate our minds. That's perspective. 
Hopefully this whole message has been aimed at perspective. And then again, number four, remember eternity. This isn't all there is. C.S. Lewis, one more time. A book on suffering, this was his problem of pain, which says nothing about heaven, is leaving out almost the whole of one side of the account. Scripture and tradition habitually put the joys of heaven into the scale against the suffering of the earth, and no solution of the problem of pain which does not do so can be called a Christian one. I agree wholeheartedly. So that's why we began in Romans 8, and that's why we'll end in Romans 8 talking about heaven. The Apostle Paul wasn't ashamed of his conviction regarding the future. He talked about it at length. We read about it at length. But let me just give you three out of those verses. First, 18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not even worth a comparison. And then verse 38. Here's what he's sure of. And would to God that this is, would be what we're sure of. There's a lot I'm not sure of. I've said I don't know so many times since March. Because that's all I've got to say. I don't know. I'm not sure. We can't plan that far ahead. But I'm sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There you go. You know, you can scour the New Testament. Jesus didn't promise us much in this life. He promised he wouldn't leave us. And he promises that some of the things we give up for him will be given to us. Most of that in eternity. But boy, what did he promise us later? He didn't promise us we wouldn't die. Paul had been beat up so many times by this. If you just look at what he'd been through. I don't think the American mind could handle the amount of pain and suffering that the man who wrote this and he didn't get to vote against the guy who would cut his head off. It, it's all a matter of perspective. But what he's telling us here is that we, as children of God, will never be separated from God. Nothing in this world can accomplish that. They may kill the body, but the soul remains. We're everlasting. Jesus didn't promise us much. Not here. But he promises everything for later. I'm at the end of my notes. And I think that's enough. And I, for one, will be glad for brighter days to talk about brighter things. And hopefully for a few or for more, these things are helpful. As tough as they may be to think through. But as a certain brother of this church family is known often to say, keep looking up. Keep looking up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. 
and for its truth and for its comfort. We thank you for being the God of all comfort and for being the great physician, for being our lawgiver, most importantly for being our Savior who came to take away the sin of the world. Lord, I ask that you bless people and comfort them who are at this moment hurting and grieved. I ask that you bless an 11-year-old girl named Haven. That you'd be with her doctors, that you'd be with her family, that you'd be with her church, and that they would be consistent in prayer. Lord, I ask you to give us what's necessary to get us through what you have chosen that we endure. And may we fix our gaze on you, not the valley of the shadow of death. We don't need to fear evil. You are with us. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word and the encouragement of the body we belong to. And we ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.